You're listening to Girls Got Game, Episode 1, Where We Are and Where We've Been. The video game widely credited as the first was hardly a video game by today's standards. Played on an oscilloscope, Tennis for Two was created by physicist William Willie Higginbottom. It would eventually go on to inspire the creation of Pong by Atari in 1972. Unlike today's games, Tennis for Two was not run on the processing power of a computer. Space War, created by MIT student Steve Russell in 1961, was. But computer games wouldn't become an in-home staple until the 1980s, following the commercial success of the personal computer. In the 1970s and 80s, video games became a force to be reckoned with. Pong moved from arcades to living rooms in 1975, and it was this in-home console video game fascination incited in equal parts by Atari and Namco with the release of Pac-Man in 1980 that birthed a multi-billion dollar industry. I'm Riley Fitz, and welcome to Girls Got Game. In this podcast series, I will explore the representation of women within the video game industry. Specifically, I will examine the roles of women in video games themselves game development, and video game communities. All of the information presented in this podcast is current up until March of 2019. This information presented here does not by any means cover everything. The gaming community is so incredibly vast and intercultural that covering every single issue is simply beyond the scope of this project. However, it is my hope that I can present a clear picture of where the industry stands today. This is Girls Got Game. The gaming community is infamous for its treatment of women. Over the past 10 years, harassment against women in this sphere has attracted the attention of pop culture websites like Gamasutra, Polygon, and Kotaku, and even publications outside the pop culture sphere, like the New York Times and Washington Post. Over the past century, women have made critical gains in equalizing the workplace. In America, they fought for equal rights during the women's suffrage movement in the early 1900s. They fought for bodily autonomy with the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion in 1973. To date, women continue to protest inequality, sexual harassment, and assault. The hashtag MeToo movement, begun in 2017, was a powerful step forward. It turned the public eye to women's experiences with inequality, assault, and harassment in the workplace during a turbulent time following the contentious 2016 presidential election. There's been no shortage of harassment against female gamers in recent years, either. In 2010, Penny Arcade, an online webcomic dedicated to video game culture, published a comic called The Sixth Slave. This comic incited an internet firestorm after presenting rape as a joke. This became known as the Dick Wolves controversy in reference to one line in the comic, quote, every night we are raped to sleep by the Dick Wolves, end quote. Following fan criticism over the inclusion of this joke as a punchline, 
Comic creators Jerry Holkins and Mike Krahulik belittled those that took issue with it. They went on to create a Dick Wolves t-shirt and pennants, and stood by their right to make rape jokes. In 2012, during a live stream, fighting game Cross Assault's team captain, Eris Bactanians, repeatedly made harassing comments towards sole female teammate Miranda Pacosdi. Stream viewers encouraged him. He repeatedly focused the camera on Pacosdi's chest and feet, smelled her at the behest of the chat, asked invasive questions, and did not stop when Pacosdi indicated that she was uncomfortable. When Anita Sarkeesian launched her Kickstarter for her web series Tropes vs. Women in Video Games in 2012, she was immediately bombarded with thousands of hateful messages, attempts to hack her internet accounts, and death and rape threats that continue to this day. Someone even went so far as to create a mock video game called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian. People doctored photos of her to make it look like she'd been attacked and posted them online. And in 2014, the culmination of years of entitlement and hate, as well as questions of nepotism within the game's journalistic practices, surged into what has become known as Gamergate. The Gamergate controversy was perhaps the most famous and shocking incident of them all. As these issues have grown in public interest, more and more individuals are starting to ask what is going on. It's 2019. Games are everywhere. Esports tournaments are being broadcast live on ESPN. Shouldn't women and girls be able to play the games they want without getting harassed? Shouldn't they be able to work on a creative project without getting heckled? The answer is more complicated than it should be. Believe it or not, the sexist environment of video games actually shares a common origin with Silicon Valley, computing. The first computer game, Gunfight, was released in 1975. It was the first game to use a microprocessor instead of a hardwired solid-state circuit. The microprocessor, invented in 1971 by the Intel Corporation, changed everything about how both video games and computers worked. No longer were vacuum tubes and transistors the way of computing. Now, computation was done using tiny chips, which allowed computers that previously spanned rooms and took up entire cabinets to fit on a desk instead. As computers shrank and became more affordable, public interest increased. They became more accessible to the average person. Computer enthusiasts made it a priority to learn how to program, as this was seen as essential to fully understanding computers. This was where the problem started to arise. Computer programming began to be taught in schools in the 1980s, this should have been a step towards equity in computer science. If this were a course in a public school, theoretically, everyone should have access to it. However, as you probably know, this did not end up being the case. Computer programming courses were often taught in conjunction with math classes, sometimes with math classes acting as prerequisites. Math was, and still is, socialized to be a male interest. Fewer girls tended to pursue math in school in the 1980s, so fewer girls came to be involved in computer programming. Women, Girls, and Computers, A First Look at the Evidence, published in 1985 by researcher Marlene E. Lockheed, says, quote, The introduction of microcomputers into homes and schools has apparently begun to sex-stereotype computers for children 
in such a way that while girls and boys show similar appreciation of the significance computers have for their personal futures, boys are more likely to take more computer courses in school than girls, to report using computers in extracurricular activities more than girls, and to report more frequent home use of computers than girls." End quote. This socialization has its gendered roots in the very origins of computer programming. In the beginning, none of the inventors of the first computer thought that instructing or coding the computer would be a difficult task. Thus, the work was given to women. Until the first computer was developed in 1945, all mathematic computations for the United States Army were conducted by female computers, women with incredible mathematics skill, sometimes even with advanced degrees, who performed calculations by hand. In 1942, the Army approached physicist and professor John Mockley and graduate engineer John P. Eckert to find a way to more efficiently recompute artillery firing tables. In February of 1946, they unveiled the Electronic Numeral Integrator and Computer, or ENIAC, to the public. It was the most powerful computing device invented to date, in spite of the fact that it took days to code it for each new problem that it was supposed to solve. It wasn't until 1997, though, that the ones who coded the ENIAC were given the recognition they deserved. The Army, after agreeing to fund the ENIAC project, had selected six women to be its programmers. Kathleen Antonelli, Jean Jennings Bartik, Frances Holberton, Marilyn Meltzer, Frances Spence, and Ruth Lichterman Tatelbaum. Jean Jennings Bartik told Linda O'Brien about her experience working for John Mockley in a 2008 interview archived by the Computer History Museum. I, my question though is why did it take so long, this wonderful time, this group of women who contributed so much for you and this group I know. to receive How the I know? recognition? I don't know. <laughs> we should ask them. All I know right. is that, that they all went out to dinner at, at the announcement and we weren't invited and there we were. And we were never, people never recognized, they never acted as though we knew what we were doing. I mean, we were in a lot of pictures, but uh, they never asked us anything. Well, we did all the programming for it. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was absurd. So. The full interview can be found on YouTube at the Computer History Museum's channel. In those days, women were usually delegated to the menial tasks involved in complex operations. Women were chosen for this work because it was expected to be clerical in nature, reminiscent of punching a card. They were supposed to be the hands doing busy work, not highly educated thinking. Instead, it turned out that coding was far more complex than anyone thought. The processes that today would be relegated to software had to be hardwired into the machine for each new trajectory. This meant that the women had to have intimate knowledge of the ENIAC hardware as well as the logical approach the ENIAC needed to take in order to solve each new problem. Because the ENIAC relied on thousands of vacuum tubes instead of transistors or microprocessors, the machine was also prone to frequent hardware failure. Marlon and Ruth, and this was the smartest thing we did, was to have Marlon and Ruth uh, 
calculate a trajectory exactly the same way the ANIAC did it, you know, ad time by ad time. Well, this is the document that made people respect us because of those 18,000 vacuum tubes, we could find the one that wasn't working in a very few minutes. These women exceeded the expectations of everyone involved, though not even the inventors of the hardware wanted to believe that they knew more about how it worked than they did. Some of the women involved in the ENIAC project, like Bartik, went on to code the UNIVAC, the next major electronic computer project. There, they met Rear Admiral Dr. Grace Hopper of the Navy Reserve. Dr. Hopper is credited as the creator of the first computer language compilers, which paved the way for programming languages which would inspire a cascade of innovation. Dr. Hopper's achievements went on to become the basis for computer languages like COBOL, which is still used in credit card and business transactions today. In 1967, Dr. Hopper told Cosmopolitan magazine that programming was, quote, just like planning a dinner. You have to plan ahead and schedule everything so that it's ready when you need it. Women are naturals at computer programming, end quote. This quote appeared in an advertisement called The Computer Girls, which hoped to draw the attention of women to this relatively new and growing field. Much of the information I am about to present comes from the book Computer Boys Take Over by Nathan Ensmenger. Ensmenger goes into great detail regarding the rise of computing as a practice, as well as the exodus of women from the industry as the years passed. To quote Ensmenger, an activity originally intended to be performed by low-status, clerical, and, more often than not, female workers, computer programming was gradually and deliberately transformed into a high-status, scientific, and masculine discipline. As computers began to be used for more than just military purposes in the 1950s and 60s, computer programming became a valued skill. Wages and prestige skyrocketed. The demand for software programmers far surpassed the supply available in the United States. In order to quickly identify individuals with a chance at being good programmers, companies began to administer aptitude tests. These tests were meant to show proficiency in logic and patience, skills essential to programming. However, these tests were heavily biased towards those with skills in mathematics, which, though important in the early days, were quickly losing their prevalence in the programming discipline. Ensmenger explains, quote, Some of the mathematical questions tested only logical thinking and pattern recognition, but others required formal training in mathematics, a fact that even Cosmopolitan recognized as discriminating against women. End quote. After all, these tests were administered during a time in which women were even more frequently discouraged from pursuing STEM and related fields than they are today. Ensmenger goes on to say that later studies into the effectiveness of these aptitude tests found little to no correlation between programming ability and a high score. Ensmenger states, quote, This bias towards male programmers was not so much deliberate as it was convenient, a combination of laziness, ambiguity, and traditional male privilege. The fact that the use of lazy screening practices inadvertently excluded large numbers of potential female trainees was simply never considered. But the increasing assumption that the average programmer was also male did play a key role in the establishment of a highly masculine programming subculture, end quote. Even though the Computer Girls Cosmopolitan ad 
called for more female computer programmers in 1967, the industry had already begun to shutter them out. Another curious result that the test had produced was the indication that the computer programmers were antisocial, another trait that could be used to discriminate against women, of whom still pervades the stereotype of being unnecessarily talkative. Other advertisements appeared in the 1960s that disparaged women's ability to program, such as one that claimed that a team of female programmers was more likely to produce errors alongside several close-up photos of feminine-styled mouths. As this new industry struggled to distinguish itself as a new but professional field, the question of what a typical computer programmer looked like emerged. This was yet another excuse to exclude women. By 1967, the use of the term code had ceased to be the principal term in reference to instructing a computer. The term code had a feminine connotation, as the first coders were female, and their work was intended to fit feminized styles of labor. So, the word code was instead replaced with the term program to break with this connotation. Ensmenger states, quote, As Margaret Rossiter and others have suggested, professionalization nearly always requires the exclusion of women. Among other things, it requires segmentation and stratification. In order to elevate the overall status of their discipline, aspiring professionals had to distance themselves from those aspects of their work that were seen as low status and routine, work that became increasingly feminized, end quote. Busy work, or coding, qualified, and was reimagined as masculine instead. This professionalization succeeded. According to the National Center for Women and Information Technology, 30 to 50 percent of computer programmers were women in the 1950s. By 2010, only 18 percent were. Researcher Marlene Lockheed, mentioned earlier, provides potential reasons for this lack of women in programming. For instance, that boys and girls were socialized to associate programming with math in spite of the fact that mathematics didn't and still doesn't play nearly as large a role in modern computing as it did in the days of the ENIAC. And math, like physics, was seen as a male field. Lockheed also states that teachers unconsciously discriminate against girls in programming classes, which prioritizes the potential of the male students over the ability of the female students. Schools, Teachers, Students, and Computers, a study published by the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement in December of 1993, said, quote, At the output level, results indicate that females know less about information technology, enjoy using the computer less than male students, and perceive more software problems. Possible causes of these differences deal with differences in parental support, access to computers in terms of availability and use, amount of female role models, and activities carried out with the computer at school. Around 1980, video games began to be playable on computers. Games like Dragon Quest Adventure and Tetris made waves. As social attitudes shaped reality, computers began to be thought of as a product for boys, not girls, and women were prejudiced accordingly. Boys tended to use computers more for recreation than for work, and the video games industry, primarily targeted at those young men playing, took off. Fast forward to 2018, when, according to the Entertainment Software Association, or ESA, 
60% of Americans reported playing video games daily on a PC, console, or smartphone. Now, 45% of video game players are women, yet the stereotypes and prejudices against them still exist. Not the least of which is the belief that women have no place in game development. Computer programming paved the way for video games, but as women were systematically excised from the industry, so too were they excluded from game development. Today, female game developers are underrepresented. They make up less than 30% of industry employees, and many face harassment in the workplace and online. In the next episode, I will discuss the origins of the first video games and how women were portrayed during this beginning, as well as how they are portrayed today. You've been listening to Girls Got Game. I'm Riley Fitz. Take care and see you next time.